Good morning and welcome to Rising. Welcome to the first normal show of 2023. We're back in studio and wishing you a very happy first week of 2023. Brianna, how was your holiday break? It was good, a little busy, but also restful. Had some fun, saw family, was able to visit New York, which I haven't done in quite some time. It's good to be home. How about you? You were in New York partly and you were in the Midwest. Uh, with it, well, it, I was also in the Midwest. Yes. In the, for the freezing cold temperatures yes. and manage? snowstorm. You were driving. I just flew. We spent about 30 hours in the car driving to Detroit, then to the other side of Michigan, then back to Detroit, then back to Grand Rapids, then back to D.C. I had every kind of weather, snow, uh, fog. Um, it was, uh, it was a lot, but the, the dogs did very well. Yeah, okay. That was the main <laughs> as thing. As long as the little Yorkies made it okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that you're safe, and I'm also glad that despite the drama of the roads, you avoided the drama of the airlines over this break. Yes, and that is something we will be discussing <laughs> later in the show. Uh, we have a great show today. We will also be discussing uh, the Twitter files with journalist and David uh, journalist David Zweig, who's going to fill us in on the reporting he did during the holiday period. And then in my radar, I'll be breaking down everything you need to know about the arrest of controversial internet personality Andrew Tate. You won't want to miss that. But first, there are big things happening in D.C. today, big political news. Why don't you tell us about that, Brianna? Oh, oh boy, Robbie. (laughs) The new year has arrived, and with it, the new Congress. The 118th Congress is set to convene on Capitol Hill this afternoon, marking the start of a new era of divided government, where Democrats will attempt to wield their slim control of the Senate to push through the remainder of President Biden's agenda and, in the lower chamber, Excuse me. Republicans are expected to flex their newfound majority in an attempt to sink the final half of Biden's term and lay out the path for a Republican successor. However, just hours before the GOP is set to take control of the House, Kevin McCarthy still does not have his votes secure in his bid for speakership. In a vote planned for midday today, McCarthy will need a majority vote to win. However, according to The New York Times, the representative from California is still short of the 200-odd votes he needs even after making a major concession, a rule that would allow a snap vote at any time to oust him as speaker. Representative Bob Good, one of five Republicans who've vowed not to support McCarthy as speaker, teased a true conservative alternative, but declined to say who that would be. And as the GOP scrambles to make sense of the future of leadership in the party, uh, over on Democrats' side of things, Senator Bernie Sanders still has yet to rule out a 2024 presidential run, even as other high-profile progressives, such as Representative Ro Khanna, appear to be circling the wagons around the president for his re-election bid by declining to say they'll run, even should Biden drop out. Mm. So uh, Democrats bending the knee, Republicans (laughs) not so much. This is wild what is happening now. McCarthy is making concessions. Um, he, He floated, well, what if I allow the rule that says you can call for a snap vote to replace the speaker at any time? And Because initially he'd said, no way, that's how they got Boehner out. And, uh, and he said, well, okay, we can do it if it can't just be one member who wants it. It has to be five members. And I don't know, Gates and the rest are sounding like that's no bueno, no deal. Yeah, there was reporting yesterday <laughs> about these closed-door meetings. People were tracking who was going in and out of um, Kevin McCarthy's office. They, there, were, there were photos posted of him moving his stuff in with the proviso that, you know, 
that furniture, those items, those personal effects might not be in that office very long if he can't get those, I believe it's 218 votes uh, to secure the majority. Mm -hmm. Now, as a leftist, I got to say, this process is all very familiar because it's what a lot of people on the left wanted to happen two years ago when Democrats were in a very, progressives were in the very similar position of having enough votes to hold up the uh, speakership of Nancy Pelosi, who was a very unpopular speaker, even uh, among Democrats, someone who uh, laces the campaign ads of Republicans across the country as the kind of stalking horse for why people should vote for Republicans and not for Democrats. And yet, despite that damage uh, reputationally, rather, that she does to the Democrats, there was absolutely no receptivity from even the most progressive flank of Democrats in Congress uh, toward holding up the speaker vote for any reason. And in fact, there was an incredible amount of misinformation propagated by both left media and centrist media that pretended if that if uh, they were to withhold their votes for Speaker Pelosi, it would result in Kevin McCarthy becoming Speaker of the House, which, of course, is not a conversation that's happening at all. No one is saying, well, if Kevin McCarthy isn't elected, it's going to default to Hakeem Jeffries, because everyone knows that's stupid and dumb and wrong. It was only the kind of propaganda that was mm-hmm. put out to try to um, excuse the fact that the left flank basically is neutered and doesn't exist and have any power. So there's a part of me that says kudos to the right for at least trying to— I know. To you're looking at this with some jealousy that they're actually— I'm a green-eyed uh, monster today. It's <laughs> funny. Um, so so the situation is—the way the vote works is, is very interesting. So it's a majority of people who show up for the vote— So there are 222 seats held by Republicans. They need to get 218 votes if everybody shows up. Maybe not everybody will. So it's a pretty close margin. Um, No vote for Speaker. And and then if if, so, if nobody gets a majority, they vote again. And since the 1920s, this has never happened. It's always been on the first ballot. Right. So one of the um, most cited examples of the last time this happened with some success by the left when we were doing this whole force the vote Michigan two years ago was over women's suffrage, where there was a period of, I think, like dozens and dozens of votes uh, where there was no conclusive victor because people were holding out for advocacy for women's rights to vote. Um, and it does create pressure. People say things like, well, you can't have government. No one will leave. They can't get anything done. They can't pass bills. And it's like, yeah, Don't threaten me with a good time. (laughs) (laughs) Look, so this is what some people on the left are saying, is that it's easy for Republicans to make this kind of threat because their whole you know, raison d'etre is to stop government from working. So it's a win-win situation for them in a way that it's not for progressives. I would argue that it is incumbent on you as a progressive that understands that we have uh, live in a two-party duopoly, where most of the bipartisan things that get passed are actually detrimental to the interests of the people in the United States, to also gum up the works for things that actually matter and to draw contrast between what you want and what the populace wants and what this corrupt uh, government is willing to do. So we'll see what happens. Mm. Well, in Republicans' postmortem analysis of their midterm disappointment uh, in this most recent election, much of the blame fell squarely on former President Donald Trump, who still doesn't appear to be taking that news all that well. On Truth Social over the weekend, Donald Trump blamed pro-lifers for the red trickle, saying, quote, it wasn't my fault the Republicans didn't live up to expectations in the midterms. I was 233 to 20. I, I think he's talking about the House vote. It was the abortion issue poorly handled by many Republicans, especially those that firmly insisted on no no exceptions, even in the case of rape, incest, or the life of the mother. That lost large number of voters. Then he also said, plus stupid Mitch's uh, dollar signs. 
Uh, so I guess that means how Mitch McConnell spent his money, which I always have to come back. But Donald Trump did not spend money on behalf of his candidate. So it's the lamest excuse. How, for the other part of the analysis, and I saw uh, pro-lifers were livid. A lot of people in conservative mm-hmm. media were very mad at him for saying this. Um, I think you can make the case. You can certainly make the case that it, that did have something to do. Trump with Trump is right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Donald Trump is right about this. Uh, the abortion issue did lose it for Republicans. People turned out overwhelmingly, including in red states, to just protect the right to choose. You can, you know, the evangelicals can fetch and say what they want to say. At the end of the day, Donald Trump is right. One about his batting average, which I think was what that that number split was in terms of the, the his endorsed candidates' victories versus well, sure, losses. But you can the, the vast majority of those people are going to win regardless of Trump that, endorsement. That's fine. But I also think, per a radar I did a few weeks ago, I think around the time of Donald Trump's endorsement, that people have grossly overstated his failures. He lost big in some important high-profile races, but overall, his instincts on these things have not been wrong, and especially on this issue of abortion. It did not have to be—it's one thing to kind of symbolically say that you're aligned with evangelicals to get them on board, but to follow through, to go farther than the um, uh, litigants actually wanted in the Dobbs decision to overturn Casey and Roe, and then to be talking about, for some prominent members of the Republican Party to be talking about a national ban on abortion, is going to spook people in exactly the way that Donald Trump described. Just because the kind of an, a small fringe part of the Republican Party doesn't like what he's saying doesn't mean that he's wrong. And there's been some really weird responses from as, uh, part to the liberal commentary about Trump's remarks trying to own Trump and dunk on him for agreeing with folks that you shouldn't have overturned Roe. And it's, it's that's Trump derangement syndrome at its peak, where you're mad at Trump for saying the things that liberals have been saying for a long time, which is that abortion rights are actually popular. I agree with you that, and what Trump said about abortion did hurt. Yet at the same time, I think the major factor for Republicans not controlling the Senate is that Trump's Senate the people he pushed in the primaries won and ended up being failed candidates. I think other candidates, regardless of the abortion situation, would have won. As they're losing alongside Republican governors who are winning, I think they would have done fine, if not for— Well, look, I think that some of Trump's candidates had really zealous positions on abortion that were out of step, so it's a little bit hard to disaggregate that. I I did my most recent episode of my podcast— That's true. His his, uh, Blake Masters, who I've I've kind of— Attacked a lot on the show, right? He had a he had a very strongly, harshly pro-life position that he scrubbed from his website in the in the end final days of the campaign. Right. So Trump has to contend with that. Like, if he cared so much, if he really thought abortion was a losing issue, why back these candidates that had these positions that required scrubbing from the internet? Um, But look, I I just want everyone to not be so uh, skeptical of some of Donald Trump's instincts here. Because he's not going anywhere, and he's been calling some some plays the right way, even though the Republican Party has had a really uh, demoralizing electoral season. So. Uh, the alienating uh, pro-life activists within the Republican Party and conservative media would be a would not be to his ben- his actual own look, benefit the, the, of his isn't career. The, isn't this the thing that people criticize Democrats for all the time, that there is too much kind of pluralism within the party, there's too many constituencies to make happy, and that's why the Democrats struggle? Look, the reality is that the Republicans are the same way. And the reason that they've been able to get away with not having to um, have trade-offs 
between members of their uh, constituency is because they haven't actually won on some of these big things. Now that they have implemented these policies, namely abortion, they've got to deal with what that means about the factions within them, the same way that Democrats have had to deal with various successes on certain certain of these social policies, et cetera, over the years. And only time will tell what happens. Yeah, well, we'll certainly be paying attention to this vote for the speaker. We'll be talking about that uh, more to come. And right now, I'll be talking about what's on my radar. First one of the year. Hope you tune in. (laughs) All right, Robbie, what is on your radar today? Well, Brianna, I'm excited to jump into my first radar of 2023, and I'd like to start by renewing a commitment on behalf of everyone here at Rising. Now, I've been the regular host of this show for over a year, and the thing I like most about working here is the ability to deliver unfiltered news to an ideologically mixed audience. You, you, the audience, expect to be informed and you expect to be entertained, but you don't expect us only to tell you what you want to hear. And in fact, we couldn't do that even if we wanted to because me and my co-hosts often disagree very passionately about very fundamental things. I see that as Rising's tremendous strength and something that sets us apart from the mainstream media, which is drowning in confirmation bias, often stringing along gullible viewers and failing to ask real probing questions of the elite consensus on topics like foreign policy, the COVID response, and the intersection between social media and free speech. At Rising, we try to do something different. But it's only possible because of you, the viewers who expect the best and actually want challenging conversations. So, on that note, I'd like to start off 2023 by discussing another too-good-to-be-true media story and providing some words of caution for my colleagues in the rest of the media. And this story concerns a man named Andrew Tate. Who is Andrew Tate, you ask? Well, he was actually one of the most Googled people all of last year. Tate is a former reality TV personality who channeled some fleeting fame into a large social media presence. He made some provocative, very offensive comments about women and ended up attracting a large following, predominantly from young men who believed him to be a kind of masculinity guru. He created scam companies, pyramid-type arrangements, something he called Hustlers University, that tricked gullible people into signing up to receive secret insider tips on how to be more successful with money, more successful with women, etc. He was eventually deplatformed on virtually all social media sites, including YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitch. He also got kicked off Twitter, but Elon Musk reinstated him after taking over the company, consistent with Musk's stated commitments to free speech. Tate is someone very much outside the mainstream, and precisely because he's been targeted by the mainstream, he ended up embraced, at least at first, by certain far-right figures. According to the Daily Beast, he visited Washington, D.C. in 2019, had dinner at the Trump Hotel, and met with far-right figures like Jack Posobiec, Ali Alexander, and Paul Joseph Watson. Fast forward to last week, when Andrew Tate tried to start a Twitter feud with climate activist Greta Thunberg, tweeting at her about all the emission-spewing cars he owns and asking for her email. Thunberg, in response, sent, uh, I think, a pretty funny reply. You can see it here. So, are are you following uh, so far? Okay, Andrew Tate came back at her with this video. Release some greenhouse gases. I'm obviously a stranger to online controversy. It's not something I often do. But now, the mainstream press is commenting on the fact that I was informing Greta that my very extensive car collection with internal combustion engines, which run on dead dinosaurs, have an enormous emission profile. 
And she replied by telling me her own email address. Greta's email address is, I have small energy. Why would that be your own email address, Greta? Strange. I mean, also I don't want to assume her gender. It's 50-50, but it is what it is. I'm not actually mad at Greta. Please bring me pizza and uh, make sure that these boxes are not recycled. Thank you. So I'm not actually mad at Greta, right? Because she doesn't realize she's been programmed. She doesn't realize she's a slave of the matrix. She thinks she's doing good. He went on for another minute like that. It was a very, I'm not owned, I'm not owned sort of, sort of thing. Uh, then after that, what happened is the Romanian authorities raided Tate's house, which is in Romania, and arrested him on suspicion of organized crime and sex trafficking. The allegation is that he forced women to perform sex acts against their will, uh, which is a very serious charge. Everyone, including Andrew Tate, of course, is innocent until proven guilty, and at least in the U.S. I do want to offer some caution because the sex trafficking label has been slapped on a lot of bad activity that nevertheless falls well short of coercive sex. As always, apply some skepticism when listening to the FBI rattling off charges. All that said, right-wing media figures who are prone to accusing political adversaries of grooming, being part of satanic cabals, and on and on, perhaps should note this hypocrisy and be taking greater care not to fall for the grift of a figure like Tate, who is possibly involved in the actual crime they are constantly harping about. Maybe they should look themselves in the mirror and ask, am I the drama? Of course, this story wouldn't be finished without a massive mainstream L as well. Given Tate's history of anti-feminist speech, his downfall was widely cheered by liberals and progressives on social media who got it in their heads that the reason Romanian authorities were able to arrest Tate is because of the pizza box in that video clip I just played for you. Assertions circulated all over social media that the Romanian police were only able to locate Tate because of the pizza company, and thus Tate's arrest was indirectly due to Greta Thunberg goading him into making that video. As the editor-in-chief of progressive feminist website Jezebel wrote on Twitter, misogynist influencer Andrew Tate and his brother Tristan were arrested on sex trafficking and rape allegations in Romania after a pizza box in his clapback video to Greta Thunberg tipped off authorities as to his whereabouts. The only problem with this claim is that it's totally made up. Independent writer Ben Dreyfus helpfully debunked it on his substack. Dreyfus points out that Romanian authorities never said the pizza box had anything to do with the arrest. They never said Greta Thunberg had anything to do with the arrest. As it turns out, no legitimate news organization has actually compiled first-hand reporting to suggest that was the case. Indeed, the whole social media fervor was whipped up by Alejandra Caraballo, a progressive activist who tweeted this without any information to back it up. Now, that tweet was viewed 81.4 million times. It received 67,000 retweets and half a million likes. Her subsequent tweet, admitting, um, psych? Well, that one received a measly 141,000 views, 1,000 likes, and just 94 retweets. I had to check these numbers in incognito mode because she has me blocked for some reason. So there you have it. You can appreciate Greta Thunberg's epic clapback to your heart's content, but don't invent stories about how the tweet helped Romanian authorities triangulate Tate's location. My first raid out of the year, Brianna. Yeah, this was, look, <laughs> a really fun story to see evolve. I mean, maybe not so fun if you are one of the people who has been emphasizing how afraid they are of grooming and making a lot of accusations about a lot of left-leaning accounts and sites and trans people, et cetera, for grooming. And then someone who kind of very 
explicitly on his website describes a business model that people have pointed out is kind of the blueprint for sex trafficking is brought down in a story like this. But for the rest of us, this was this felt like um, the most shot and fraud moment of the last 10 years and a pretty auspicious start to 2023 for those who like to see uh, people kind of fall from grace on the internet. I think your point is well taken about the misinformation aspect of the story. It did get corrected relatively quickly, but you know, the lie goes around the world 16 times before the truth makes one lap. And, and we see that here. I think a lot of folks kind of don't care because uh, at, <laughs> at the end of the day, I mean, it was, a, it was a good, it was a fun story. And even once the correction got out there, people are like, the, the, the thing that they're focusing on is Andrew Tate's reaction that, oh, how dare you tweet, which was his first response to uh, Greta Thunberg, which felt a little, um, as you say, like, I am not owned, uh, corn cob Mimi. Yeah. Uh, and then the follow-up insistent tweets from Andrew Tate and his allies that, you know, Greta was really self-owning because she listed her own email address as having small d energy, which because an epic case of sort of missing the joke and it going over his head. But I don't want to also miss the fact that these are really serious sex trafficking allegations um, that he has been arrested for. And as I mentioned earlier, on his website, he explains, quote, why I am an expert on all male-female interactions. He says, and what many people have been taking as a kind of admission, I've been running a webcam studio for nearly a decade. I've had over 75 girls work for me, and my business model is different from 99% of all webcam studio owners. Over 50% of my employees were actually my girlfriend at the time, and all of my uh, and all of my girlfriends, none were in the adult entertainment industry before they met me. Uh, I my job was to get women to fall in love with me. That was literally my job. My job was to meet a girl, go on a few dates, sleep with her, test if she was quality, get her to fall in love with me to where she'd do anything I'd say, and then get her on webcam so that we could become rich together. So you know, we'll see how the legal system. That sounds very creepy. <laughs> whether it's Sex trafficking remains to be right. seen well, to me, but it certainly sounds Apparently, sex trafficking and experts have said that this is a common dynamic to get people, especially younger women, which he has emphasized he prefers and that men generally prefer to date women um, who are in their teens. Right. Uh, which, again, the whole calling everyone a groomer thing, maybe don't venerate this guy then. Right. Well, it's, people are saying it's the biggest case of projection that you've ever seen. Yeah. Um, and, you know, all of the usual suspects who've been talking about how terrible grooming is, seem to be aligned, I shouldn't say all, but many of the usual suspects are very much aligned and supportive of Andrew Tate. And right, although out- I, should, I should say, I also, there are tons of people, it, it, I mean, on all sides of the political spectrum and within the conservative movement who are like, who is this guy? I've never heard of him before. That was also a very common sure, reaction. Sure, but uh, Robbie, as you pointed out, he was the most Google person of last year, and he is not as famous as he is without having a, a significant amount of traction with men, young men in particular, who see something in him. And I think it's worth it's worth examining for everyone, no matter where you sit on the political spectrum, why so many young men feel failed in such a way that they're seeking out advice from someone like Andrew Tate, who, as you saw in the video, doesn't seem to me to be a particularly shining example of uh, aspirational manhood. I don't think you're going to up your dating game <laughs> by taking his advice. That would be my advice. Yeah, look, something's going on here, and, and I, I think we need to think about that as a society. Um, there's some young, vulnerable men out there who obviously are looking for guidance and perhaps in all the wrong places. Yeah. Uh, but look, it, it was a great story, and I'm glad you covered it. Thank you. Thank you, Brianna. <laughs> All right, we'll have more Rising right after this. Stay with us.
the 2022 holiday season did not go off without a hitch for travelers flying with Southwest. The airline was at the center of last week's travel meltdown after it canceled at least 2,500 flights, making up 70% of all canceled flights, leaving thousands upon thousands of travelers stranded. Southwest committed to improving and was supposed to have resumed, quote, normal scheduling. But according to Flightware, Flightware, the airline scrapped 160 flights on Monday. 422 flights were delayed. Several pilots and travel industry experts blamed Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, saying he hasn't done enough to prevent the travel crisis. Here to discuss what's at the root of this debacle is friend of the show and host of the Savvy Sabs podcast, Sabrina Salvati. Welcome back, Sabrina. Good morning. So nice to see you in the new year. Uh, were your holiday travel plans impacted <laughs> by this absolute disaster we saw unfolding? They were not. Uh, luckily, I didn't have to travel this year, but I think that uh, I've heard from enough people to know that it was a disaster for many people, unfortunately. Yeah, so what is going on? I, I see a lot of people uh, on the left uh, really taking aim at uh, Buttigieg, who I know is not someone really esteemed by the left in the first place. So I don't know if this is looking for opportunity to capitalize on previous grievance or uh, legitimate frustration with how he has governed this, uh, how, how he has ruled as the transportation secretary. Uh, what is your view of the job he's doing? Well, first and foremost, I think it's absolutely horrendous that Southwest Airlines is selling tickets for seats that they do not have. So I've heard complaints from numerous people, uh, and there seems to be no accountability there. So everyone is pointing their fingers at Pete because he's the secretary of, of transportation of here. And he just seems to be not around or he's not doing his job. Now, as Rokana so eloquently tweeted uh, that himself and Bernie Sanders told Pete Buttigieg several months ago to start implementing fines on these airlines so that this doesn't happen again in the future. Because if we remember, we had issues with Southwest over the summer as well. So Pete Buttigieg had not implemented those fines on Southwest. It appears this has been done to foreign uh, airlines and one domestic airline, but Southwest was not impacted. And there's no accountability for Southwest Airlines. And there seems to be no accountability for Pete Buttigieg as well. Uh, so I think we need to ask the question, if Pete Buttigieg is not doing his job, then why is he still in that position? Yeah, I have seen a lot of liberals pushing back saying, what's Pete Buttigieg supposed to do? He's only one man. And I do think it's important to point out, one, that a lot of this was predictable. People like Rokana and Bernie Sanders had been warning about this particular practice of uh, uh, booking passengers for seats that didn't exist, uh, and then basically exploiting the fact that most people don't know what policies exist to reimburse folks for that kind of behavior. Moreover, apparently, there is an outstanding, what, $10, uh, uh, $10 billion worth of outstanding, $10 million worth, rather, of outstanding uh, fees from cancellations that existed back to the beginning of the pandemic that have not been, uh, people have not been compensated for. Uh, so it does seem like there are a number of actors, reporters, and people who are expert in the transportation industry who have pointed to actual policy choices that have, could have helped to avert this crisis. But can you also speak to this other issue with their scheduling system that seems to have been at the root of, of some of the backlog over the holiday season? Well, according to the CEO from Southwest, he said that the scheduling system is from the 1990s. I understand that. But at the same time, this didn't seem to be an issue four or five years ago. It was an issue in 2022 twice. 
So what is really going on there? I do know that there have been uh, Southwest employees that have, have quit. Uh, so there may be a staff shortage there, even though they're saying that there isn't. There, but there is something else that is key here. And let's not forget that Southwest Airlines, they were given uh, money from the U.S. government. I don't know what they did with that money, but that technology system should have been updated years ago. Uh, so I don't think the blame solely lies on the technology system. I think that's a scapegoat for the CEO to use at this point. But the real damage that has been done is to the American people. Some of the customers that I've spoken to, this was actually going to be their first time visiting family members for the holidays because of everything that happened with the pandemic. And they didn't get the opportunity to do that. And some of them have explained to me that they weren't refunded for their, their purchases either. So where I come from, Bree, this is called a scam. And there's no accountability for Southwest Airlines. And I think we all should be pointing our fingers at Pete Buttigieg at this point. Hmm. To your point, Abby, Southwest was the first airline to resume paying dividends to its shareholders after taking all that money from the CARES Act. Uh, and it raises questions about whether or not that money would have been better used reinvested back into the airline and correcting some of these uh, technical issues. The Department of Transportation tweeted the day after Christmas that it would be looking into Southwest's rate of cancellations and delays, which it called unacceptable. Do you think the, dep the Transportation Department can do much to prevent these kinds of setbacks in the future, Savvy? I, I think that they, they can. And I, I want to point out to the point that uh, for the customers that were threatened to be arrested on the airlines, uh, this is another example as well as the law enforcement agency looking out for capital, looking out to protect property and business instead of the American people. And I think we need to also ask as well, you know, why were the police called in the first place? Because Southwest uh, as a business did not want to deal with angry customers, which those customers had every right uh, to be angry at that point. But when you are stranded at the airport and you don't have a seat and your flight is cancelable, most people have nowhere to go. You can't go back to the hotel because most of the time you've, you've already checked out. There may not be rooms available for you. So you lose money in the process. You lose time and you're basically stranded there. So what are those customers uh, supposed to do? But I think at this point in time, Pete Buttigieg needs to step up and do his job or they need to replace him with someone else. Hmm. But I would say, well, I would say a couple things. First of all, never another dime for any airline industry of taxpayer dollars, period. Um, they don't use it to, you know, improve services for customers. Um, it was always a bad idea. Second of all, no one should ever fly Southwest again. And it's a, <laughs> then it's a self-correcting problem. I, don't, I mean, I, I don't think Buttigieg is doing a particularly good job uh, either. But uh, in some ways, I see it as something that can, you know, you, you got they did this to customers, customers should punish them. Or nationalize the airline. I mean, some people have made no. the case that as no. much money as the government has put into these airlines, it could have owned them outright already. And if you're worried about some of these profit-driven practices, these um, corrupt course of practices being at the root of some of the holiday mishigas that people have just experienced, then you can get rid of that profit incentive by simply allowing the, the airline to be government The government owned. can't keep track of the money it spends in Afghanistan and Ukraine. How would it keep track of my luggage better than Southwest. What do you make of that argument, Sadie? Well, I want to add, I think the government can keep track of the money that they've sent to Ukraine. They're just choosing not to. 
Uh, they don't want to be accountable there. Uh, but I agree with trying to nationalize the airlines. Listen, we have to remember this is a corporation. They are in it for profit, even if that means that they have to sell seats that they do not have. Uh, this is this is terrible for the American people. But this is another example where we are in late stage capitalism in this country and it's happening globally as well. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Sabi. Uh, we'll have more rising for you right after this. Journalist David Zweig is the latest to participate in the Twitter files. Last week, he published how Twitter rigged the COVID debate by censoring information that was true but inconvenient to U.S. government policy by discrediting doctors and other experts who disagreed and by suppressing ordinary users, including some who are sharing the CDC's own data. Here to break down what he found out, journalist David Zweig. Wonderful to have you with us, David. Thanks for having me. All right, so what were the big headlines from your perusal of the Twitter files? What did you see that really caught your attention? Um, I think there, there were a few key things. Um, the first one is that there certainly was evidence of direct pressure from the White House in both the Trump administration, but much more so from the Biden administration on Twitter to get them to moderate um, specific content. Um, so the first thing is government involvement or sort of government pressure. And then the larger part of my reporting that I found fascinating and that, that I was curious about that really prompted me to want to go to San Francisco was to get a little bit better understanding of what goes on sort of behind the scenes at Twitter. Um, these social media platforms that hundreds of millions of us use, it's very, very opaque about how the algorithms work and what the process is. So I really wanted to uncover a little bit the process by which you know they decide which things get flagged as misleading and which things don't. So let's talk about that process a little bit. Um, you wrote that part of the issue is that so much of the content moderation was being done by bots who were insufficiently nuanced to actually capture what even the intention was by the people at Twitter. And at other points, you, you talk about content moderation decisions uh, that were made kind of contrary to Twitter's own policy. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty fascinating. Um, I think a lot of us hear the word algorithm or bots. It's not really entirely clear what that means. I spent a long time talking with an engineer at Twitter, as well as another executive, trying to just a little, get a little bit better understanding of what that stuff means. And basically, when we talk about bots, it's they, they essentially train, the, the, the employees will train the, the software, the system, through machine learning and through AI, they feed it you know, a handful of tweets or key terms or other things like that. And then the more the, the sort of bots crawl across um, the, the network, the more they train themselves about what to look for. And then periodically over time, humans will actually give it more, feeding it more inputs to help sort of refine what the bots are looking for. So that's kind of the very basic sketch about how these bots work, but we have to understand it always comes back to the humans who are actually deciding what the inputs are for the bots to look for. When we were talking about the Twitter files in the context of the FBI and, and the Hunter Biden laptop and election stuff, 
Um, I, I, what we saw, I think at first at least, was a lot of resistance on Twitter's part to be overly compliant with the government, and then that kind of resistance being eroded gradually when when the gov government employees keep coming back to them over and over again, and and really, you know, not threatening, using very careful language, but uh, but pushing them more and more toward uh, toward a compliance mindset. Um, did you see a similar thing happening um, here from the White House and the CDC perspective with respect to COVID? Well, what we do know is from an internal email that I found from, um, from an executive at Twitter, Lauren Culbertson, where she characterized um, the multiple meetings from the Biden White House, and she characterized the, the tone of the White House staff members being, quote, very angry with Twitter, that they were not being more compliant with um, the White House's, you know, wishes or, you know, or demands, as it were, um, that they really, really wanted them to be much more aggressive with deplatforming what they, whoever they deemed were, quote, anti-vaxxers or information that they deemed to be um, insufficiently in, in accordance with um, the sort of White House and CDC guidelines. Yeah, I, I want to be specific about the kind of tweets that we're talking about being censored here. You mentioned one in particular um, by Martin uh, Kuldroff, who tweeted out uh, that basically thinking that everyone must be vaccinated is scientifically flawed thinking, uh, as, as is the thinking that nobody should be vaccinated. Vaccines are more important for older, high-risk people and their caretakers. Those with natural prior infection do not need it, nor children. And this is something that is obviously much more discussed today as we have learned more, perhaps people already knew more, um, about uh, the failures of the vaccines to prevent transmission the way that we thought they might before. So the argument in the earlier days was, even though we do know that kids are relatively at low risk, that older people and people who are immunocompromised and have other comorbidities are at higher risk, they could still pass it along to people with higher risk, and therefore everybody should get vaccinated uh, regardless of their own personal risk. Um, you know, I wonder what you make having looked through the decision-making kind of behind, behind the door. Do you have the feeling that those kind kinds of statements were suppressed because they believed them sincerely to be false or because there was this broader project of just wanting to get as many people vaccinated as possible so that the economy could keep going, so that stores could reopen. Because you also mentioned earlier in your thread that there was this censoring of information that might lead to panic buying. And that reminds me of the run on the masks, the concern that there would be a run on a mask and people lying the early days where they were lying to the public about the efficacy of masks, in part because they wanted to preserve them for uh, medical professionals. Yeah, um, good, good questions. You know, it, it's hard to know precisely um, the, the motivations, you know, of course, uh, of the individual employees. All we do know is the sort of broader policies that were in place. And I gave, I mean, there were many, many more examples that I had that, that I didn't include in my Twitter thread or in my larger piece that I wrote for the Free Press, because, you know, there's only so many uh, examples to give. But, but what I tried to show through a series of examples like the Kaldorf tweet that you mentioned is that we had incidences where there were highly credentialed professionals like Martin Kaldorf, you know, a Harvard professor and others, or even regular users who were either A, just simply giving their opinion, which, which is valid to give someone's opinion. It wasn't false. It was merely uh, Dr. Kaldorf's opinion. Or they were actually quoting real data from uh, peer-reviewed journals or even data from the CDC itself. And these tweets were nevertheless 
being suppressed in one way or another. Either they were labeled as misleading. Um, at times, the tweets or the accounts themselves were suspended because of this material. So that's kind of the broader um, thing that rather than conjecturing too much about the, the sort of motives or the why, other than seeing evidence of the White House pressure, what we do know is, is to actually look at the, the evidence we have before us. And we can see over and over again that tweets that were really of genuine substantive material, like as I said, something from a peer reviewed journal that nevertheless were um, flagged by the bots and then ultimately by humans at Twitter itself. And I think that's the kind of broader pattern that we saw. And you know, it, obviously for, for any citizen, this raises a lot of questions about you know, how social media fun uh, platforms should function and you know, content moderation and what is, where, where do they draw the line? Um, and, and, I don't know and, the answers to those questions, but um, yeah. I wanted to at least present information for people to see. And you, you point out, um, you know, Trump had tweeted something about, uh, say, don't be afraid of COVID, don't let it dominate your life. That was on October 5th, 2020. And, and you say that prompted a lot of internal discussion about whether that was misleading information. And then, and then actually Jim Baker, who's this Twitter, former FBI figure at Twitter, we criticized uh, previously and was, was fired by Elon Musk. But then when Biden had a, had a, you know, don't be afraid of COVID tweet, so he flagged that then for Yul Roth and was like, well, are we going to have a whole debate over this one then? Which I think really highlights the, the degree to which this policy became absurd when you're sort of like trying to moderate people's sort of optimistic feelings, right? <laughs> Yeah, it, it was when I that was one of the one of the you know, I mean, I combed through thousands of emails internally. And this was one of the ones that just I, th I think I described it as surreal um, that you had a Trump tweet where he said, like, hey, everybody, like, don't be afraid of covid. I think he had just um, gotten out of a hospital or something. And Jim Baker, the you know, the deputy, uh, I believe his title was deputy uh, counsel, you know, that's sort of one of the, the lead attorney at Twitter was is part of this broader big internal discussion about whether the tweet should be taken down or labeled misleading was saying, hey, doesn't this violate our policy? And Yoel Roth had to respond to him, look, I'm sorry, but optimism is not misinformation. Um, so it was just, you know, that's when you realize things have gone completely off the rails when, you know, high level executives in internal discussions in a very, you know, sincere way are questioning whether a statement of optimism is considered misinformation. That, that's a problem. David, I want to ask you about some of the pushback that you've gotten. People have pointed to some of your ideological priors, saying that you're supportive of the Great Barrington Declaration or being generally kind of ideologically aligned with some of the tweets that have been censored, uh, you know, biases your review of the documents and internal files. And I wonder what, what you make of that criticism and if you think that some of the reception of the um, reporting coming out of the Twitter files would be better and better perceived among people who don't share those ideological priors if there was some um, diversity in the folks who've been chosen to look through these files. So if someone like both yourself and someone who has been um, more, let's say, aligned with the CDC recommendations or the um, censorship choices that have been made were also being confronted with doing the same process alongside you. Yeah, it's a really good question. I would say, first off, Every journalist, every human has their own biases and their own lens through which they see the world and any, you know, long list of topics. So the notion that 
people who were quote contrarian um, had more of a bias or like were more affected by their lens through which they see the world than other people is silly. Um, the journalists at you know all sorts of legacy and mainstream media outlets had their own bias that pushed things. So that's one thing to, to set aside. I don't think there's one sort of perfect objective um, journalist or lens through which anything can be seen. Um, but secondarily, what's interesting is in one of the um, tweets that I showed was, was a response to a user who had tweeted out um, um, a screenshot of CDC data itself. And the tweet got flagged as, quote, misinformation. It was about um, this person named Kelly. She was showing that, um, contrary to what someone else has said, that COVID has never been the leading cause of death for children. And when she got into an exchange with an employee at Twitter, the person ultimately said to her, look, it's our policy to specifically look and go after content that may possibly lead to increased transmission um, or something of that nature. So I think that's a really important window into the sort of broader mindset and approach of Twitter, um, which I think gets to your question, which is that, the, and, and lots and lots of people, me among them, noticed this anecdotally for years that the most outlandish claims, people from this person named Eric Feigelding, just these most hyperbolic, fear-mongering craziness were never flagged. Um, but yet time and time again, you'd see something, even if it's quoting CDC data itself, um, those were labeled as misleading. So we saw this anecdotally, but this exchange um, this correspondence that um, this person had with the Twitter staff member really helped illuminate why we anecdotally we had seen this, which is that they always seemed to side with more aggressive um, moderation approach against anything that would seem to go against the CDC's um, guidelines and approach or anything that would sort of lean toward being less aggressive with mitigations. And that, so that sort of was the official policy. So I appreciate if people thought that, you know, I'm picking and choosing things, but the things that I chose aligned with, they exemplified what was the official policy at Twitter. Mm. Yeah, I have no, I mean, there's no reason to necessarily doubt that, except for that, the lack of transparency, you know, these documents not being made widely available is of course going to lead people to bring skepticism to them. And, you know, it, it does seem, to be the case that if you want a broader audience to take these kinds of this kind of reporting seriously, that it wouldn't necessarily hurt to have different ideological sets of eyes on it. Because as you as you point out, everybody has their biases, and the only way to seem it seems to me to get around that is to have the kind of idea, ideological diversity that we have here on this panel. But I we appreciate you joining us today, David. Thanks for having me. We'll have more rising for you after this. Twitter CEO Elon Musk has teased the release of the Fauci files. On Sunday, Musk wrote, hope you're having a great day one, 2023. One thing's for sure, it won't be boring. And one user replied, waiting for Fauci files, to which Musk, re Musk responded later this week. The Fauci files come as Musk faces a whirlwind of bad press amidst reports that he lost half of his multi-billion dollar fortune over the last year. According to Bloomberg Billionaires Index, Musk, who leads Tesla, SpaceX, and now Twitter, saw his wealth drop $200 billion from November 2021 through last month, making it one of the biggest losses of wealth in recent history. According to the index, the CEO's declined wealth stems from the dip in Tesla stock, which was down 65% in 2020. 
2022. Despite the historic losses, Musk is still very much a billionaire, posting status as the second richest person on Earth. Yeah, look, obviously a lot of people who do not agree politically with Elon Musk were kind of taking a victory lap and have been watching Tesla's stock plummet. But don't all those uh, people want billionaires to not have any money anyway or something? Yeah, I mean, so it's a, it's a double celebration yeah. to triple ce- celebration. It's perfectly ideologically right. consistent. But it's worth pointing out that there are people who support Elon Musk, who are also Tesla advisors, that are not happy at all and who are pointing uh, to what looks like a conflict of interest between the amount of time that he's devoting at Twitter and the amount of time he is on Twitter and the fate of his primary industry and the source of his enormous wealth, including uh, one investor, Gary Black, tweeted, Elon's a a brilliant business leader. He will realize soon already, if not already, that his polarizing political views are hurting customer perceptions of Tesla. So this is not someone who is anti-Musk. It's someone who's an investor who thinks that Elon is great, but that he is distracted. And he goes on to say that if he were to refocus all of his energies on running Tesla, uh, it could be at a $3 trillion market cap in five years. And there's many, many more like that. I mean, do you think that Elon's statements that he will, in fact, step down at some point indicate that he is kind of taking this advice to heart? Yeah, I don't think the statement that you just read is unfair whatsoever. And to some degree, it seems that Elon knows this because he has said that he's going to step down and name a different CEO. I think that makes total sense. He can own Twitter. He doesn't have to be the person running it or coming up with all the policies or responding to every single person on Twitter who has agreements, or at least every single right-wing person, which is what he seems to be doing. And I I see how over time that's going to give the perception of one-sidedness and could hurt the other businesses. So I, I understand what those other investors are saying. I think it's a good thing that he acquired Twitter and has shed some uh, some light on what went on during the previous Twitter regime. We're learning a lot about how COVID moderation was made, about how moderation related to so-called election misinformation was made. I think this has been these have been worthy contributions to the public dialogue, you know, concerns about who's doing it and could it have been more transparent, maybe have some legitimacy. But on the whole, this is a positive project. Um, that doesn't mean he needs to be the person right. like like the guy literally in charge of its day-to-day operations. He should find some someone or, or a number of people, a team of people, who share his vision for what Twitter should be. A, a kind, it sounds like that's a kind of public square with a much higher degree of, of free speech protections and transparency around how moderation decisions are made. And that person can be accountable to Elon Musk and hopefully accountable to the users of Twitter and, and whoever is, is involved in making sure it makes money. But that doesn't need to be Elon, and he can you know, be less distracted. That seems like a smart decision, so I hope to see that take yeah, place. And frankly, there might be more positive attention toward the disclosures if there is the perception that it's a little bit distanced from mm-hmm. Elon, who's become a polarizing figure, and that the files are being reviewed by an ideologically diverse group of people um, who can not, you know, can, can have their biases less obviously confirmed the way that we all have our biases confirmed when we're doing this kind of research. Um, so people should definitely watch, if they haven't already, the segment we did today all about the uh, COVID Twitter files drop. I wonder what you expect we might learn additionally mm-hmm. from a Fauci-specific Twitter file Yeah, drop. so by Fauci files, I presume they mean any communications that Fauci himself had or maybe people in his mm-hmm. office with uh, with Twitter. Um, I'm not sure. I, I have no idea how vast those are. I, I would presume they weren't particularly vast. That mm-hmm. people, I mean, We know people from the CDC communicate. You know, I've even re- resu- uh, reviewed some documents um, that I'm writing about that I'm going to talk about in greater detail um, at a a future date when I'm I'm 
done with that. Um, it's, it's typically not Fauci himself. But if there is Fauci himself, obviously that will be of, of great interest. And it, it might be the case. Uh, it might be the case Fauci has, it will be just as surprised by what he said uh, as anyone else. If you recall from that uh, testimony, uh, that deposition that he participated in where he said he didn't, you know, I hit a very, I don't recall everything that's past my desk that I've signed off on. Um, so it, it, it could be quite interesting. I, we will definitely cover it. Yeah. Um, there, there could be something to learn there, but it sounds like most of the content moderation relating to COVID, uh, a lot of it was coming from the White House and the CDC, mm. but probably not from Fauci himself. And as you were home over the break, perhaps watching more cable news than you might ordinarily, what do you make of the lack of coverage of the Twitter file disclosures? Do you think that this has any kind of public penetration beyond people who are very online, the 3% of Americans who are on Twitter? Do you think this is the, these, these disclosures are ultimately going to move the needle in any meaningful way politically? Yeah, I, I think it is notable that all the Twitter files taken in their totality have barely merited a mention from mainstream Cable news, obviously, conservative news. Fox has covered them uh, very, very much so. Uh, I think the, the mainstream outlets, I, I'm not sure that the cable news outlets have much excuse not to cover it. I don't know why they're not covering it more. I think your mainstream kind of reporting outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post or something will say, well, we're not going to report on it unless they can share the documents with us and then we'll report on mm. it. But we're not doing third-hand report, although they do that on other issues all the time. So and it's not really have, a totally legitimate excuse. we do have some documents, excuse. right? They are yeah. in, in the files releasing screen grabs yeah. of various emails. And I don't know that there has been a real uh, questioning of the, the authenticity of no, those been documents. No, obviously they're like not. I, you know, you can, I'm sure you can take issue, people will take issue with what, how Schellenberger, or Zweig, and Barry Weiss, and Taibbi have framed things, but they're I, I trust that those are real documents they're screenshotting. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think anyone with any legitimacy is suggesting that it's not. So then it feels like a choice to just not cover this at all, not yeah. let viewers and readers know that um, know the full extent of how much the government was le- was pushing these companies to engage in the sort of moderation we saw uh, sure. throughout the election and throughout COVID. On the flip side of that, if you wanted more coverage and if these media institutions are saying that we would be happy to cover them if we had access to the primary documents, it's hard for me to understand if you're already doing the document review process and making them available to journalists, why not make them more available to more journalists so you can mm-hmm. have some mainstream penetration if, and so pe- more people can know what's up. I mean, not doing so is going to lead people to the implication that there's a selective release of documents that is hiding unfavorable facts to a different mm-hmm. partisan perspective. And there's a really easy way to push back against that implication and I think also enrich journalism um, for the broader public. So I agree, but even so, there's just there are so few stories in mainstream outlets. Or even noting that we were denied, you know, it can say these are being... Uh, reported by these individuals. We have asked for access. We were denied access. Um, they're not even, that's not happening to a yeah. large degree. Yeah. It's very, very interesting and All kind right. of telling. Fauci Files up next. We'll cover that when they are released and we'll have more rising for you after this. Yeah. 
Sasha Georgettis, a former staffer for California Congresswoman Katie Porter, contracted COVID in July of 2022 while completing a Wounded Warrior Fellowship for her office. Georgettis felt body aches one day in the Congresswoman's office and tested positive the next day. She then continued the rest of her fellowship remotely, not before alleging that, uh, not before Representative Porter accused her of infecting her with COVID. The staffer received texts from the Congresswoman following the events, blaming her for spreading COVID and leaving her kids without anyone to care for them. She also accused Georgettis of failing to follow office policies, which would require her to get tested the day she felt ill instead of the following day. Porter's office did not respond to Reason Magazine for comment. Joining us now to discuss is Sasha Georgettis, former Porter staffer and current consultant. Welcome to Rising. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, Sasha, this is an interesting story. I mean, as a leftist myself, uh, Katie Porter has been a shining star from a policy perspective or use of the whiteboard to very clearly explain uh, various economic policies disproportionately that would help working class people have been a real boon to the left. Um, you know, when you look at the, the text messages to you, they do seem to reflect uh, much less compassion that one might potentially expect from a politician who's kind of known from a policy perspective for a compassionate, humanistic approach. Um, what do you make of this all? Um, you know, what I make of it is that this is this is common in a lot of offices. This isn't just necessarily regulated to the left or the right. It just comes down to the treatment of staff in a lot of offices and the presentation of being compassionate and caring, but then turning around and not treating their staff in the same exact manner isn't really okay. You, you should be what you preach. Yeah, so these texts, people should really take a look at them. Maybe we can put them up on screen if we have them. Uh, so I saw that a few days ago, I saw them making the rounds on social media. Uh, they're texts between uh, Katie Porter and you, uh, where she's really... Uh, unkind, saying that, you know, it's your fault she got COVID, which, so this happened back in July, uh, and I saw this going around on social media, and then I, I wanted to follow up with you to make sure, like, this was true, because it was being, it was, some people were saying as if, like, this had just happened, and I looked, and I'm like, but wait, uh, Representative Porter got COVID back in July, so then I touched base with you, and you kind of gave more context for what happened. You said that, you know, you, you work out a lot, you exercise, you're very active, you started to feel, uh, you know, you have had some soreness, but you didn't, you, that could have been typical of going to the gym, et cetera. You really did test the second you started to feel sick, sick, and then, and then you did everything right. So for her to, and she retaliated against you. She blamed you for giving her COVID and she, she didn't exactly fire you, but she did, did not want to see you ever again. She didn't let you come to the office ever again until your fellowship ended. And it's a very blaming kind of, uh, kind of message um, that, that I, I see would be very, very hurtful. Yeah, um, especially after the amount of work that I had put in and just the amount of time that, you know, all of her staffers put in to, to really push for her cause and push for this legislation, it was very hurtful. And it was very uh, painful to see that she did use that Facebook Live two weeks later after she had basically told me I could not come back. And, you know, the common thing in a lot of Wounded Warrior Fellowships is basically either assistance, you know, to find a position in another office after you leave or generally to offer a position within the office um, prior to you leaving. But, you know, I, it was just hurtful to, 
to think that it's not just me that experiences this. It's This is just the tip of the iceberg for a lot of people in a lot of different offices. And also to do the whole, like, you gave me COVID, like, yeah, no, I mean, I let's, mean let's she could have got it from somewhere else. She could have given it to you. It doesn't, you can show symptoms before you, it's, it's all, to still be in that mindset or to have a major political figure still in that mindset is alarming to me. Well, let's, let's read these, these, Text because you know, unlike a lot of people in the situation, Sasha, you were very kind of apologetic and conciliatory and humble in yeah, your you interactions <laughs> with Representative Porter. So you say to her, "I'm terribly sorry. You're right. I should have done better. Just because I felt okay in the moment doesn't mean that I was." She replies, "Sasha, I cannot allow you back in the office given your failure to follow office policies. Cody will be in touch about having your personal effects shipped and delivered to your home, and will lay out your remote work schedule and possibilities." You again say that you understand that. You were in your right mind because it's not. You say it's not a lack of excuse. Um, uh, sorry, it's not an excuse, rather, uh, but that you had uh, found out that your friend from the Navy had been murdered and you weren't. Your head was not in the right mind space. And in response to that, there wasn't really an acknowledgement of your personal situation. Um, she responds. Well, you gave me COVID. In 25 months, it took you not following the rules to get me sick. My children have nobody to care for them. <laughs> and again, I, I understand the frustration of getting COVID and having to deal with childcare. But the kind of lack of um, parallel empathy shown in your direction as you've made this kind of disclosure about your own personal loss, that's what's most jarring to me. Yeah. And I think to me, that was also the most jarring because within the two years I had been in her office, I had lost three shipmates. And by that point, uh, that was the third one. And it is really hard to serve with individuals and then lose them no matter if you were best friends or not best friends. So I, I was jarred by the lack of empathy, especially, um, because, you know, the month before was Memorial Day and we had gone to a Memorial Day event. So it just, it really did take me back because I didn't expect that. Yeah, well, look, this is hard because, like I said, I think Katie Porter does great work. You probably agree, and that's why you chose to work for her. And as someone who, you know, worked for the Bernie campaign, and certainly there were moments, as in any campaign and in any workplace, that a person could complain about, I felt an enormous amount of pressure to kind of, a lot of us felt an enormous amount of pressure just to keep your head down for the for the cause, as it were. Uh, what we were there for and fighting for was bigger than any kind of regular routine office place uh, melodrama or whatever happens. So I, I imagine this was a, a difficult choice for you to come out and disclose this. Can you tell us about that decision making? Yeah, um, it wasn't easy because I did learn a lot in her office, and I don't want to discredit any legislation that she's done because she's done a lot of great work, but. Um, what it came down to is, I always tell people I'm an advocate. I've been an advocate my whole life, advocating for different things from veterans to active duty to mental health, you know, within that and sexual trauma within that. But with this decision, if you follow Dear White staffers, you'll see just not only my posts, but the endless amounts of posts from different offices coming forward and just saying the treatment that they have and the way that they're underpaid and overworked and and we are just kind of told to put our head down for the cause and you don't want to discredit anybody. But if these are our elected officials and they're in places of power, they also need to be held accountable as well. Mm. Well, Sasha, thank you so much for joining us and thank you, of course, for your service. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. We'll have more Rising right after this. 
last Friday, Brian Koberger was taken into custody at his parents' home in Effort, Pennsylvania, in connection with the murders of four Idaho college students. The 28-year-old graduate student was pursuing a Ph.D. in criminology at the Washington State University, about 10 miles away from the crime scene. Moscow police chief James Fry told ABC News that Koberger is believed to be the only suspect in the high-profile case and that no other arrests are likely to be made. The suspect's family released a statement following his arrest, expressing their sadness for the families of the victims, saying that they have cooperated fully with law enforcement to, quote, seek the truth and promote his presumption of innocence. Joining us now to discuss is senior national correspondent for News Nation, Brian Enton. Welcome, Brian. So, Thanks for having to, me. I appreciate it. Yeah, good to see you. This is obviously the break in the case. Um, we were all very hoping would uh, would come soon. Uh, can you tell us, you know, what led to this arrest and uh, and and you know, elaborate? On, so you're in Pennsylvania right now. Uh, so this, obviously this is a to- totally different state across the country from where this took place. Uh, you fill us in on what you've been reporting on. Yeah, I don't think anyone really saw this coming, uh, that, that this would now end on literally the other side of the country from Idaho. I'm in Monroe County, Pennsylvania right now, where the hearing uh, for Brian Koberger will be happening this afternoon. It's expected to be quick because, um, you know, he said his lawyer says that he's going to waive his extradition hearing uh, and will not fight being brought back to Idaho. So he may be back in Idaho as early as uh, tonight. Uh, in terms of, of what um, led uh, led police release the probable cause affidavit, uh, they tell us that they won't release that until uh, he is back on the ground in Idaho. Apparently, there's an Idaho law that they can't release that affidavit until he's physically back in the state. Um, but from what we can gather, um, it seems that they were tracking him for quite some time, at least several days. They must have had some kind of evidence. Uh, his attorney, his public defender, told me that he drove the Brian Koberger, the suspect, Suspect drove in mid-December in a white Honda Elantra from um, from Washington State University, where he was a PhD student, which is very, very close to Moscow, Idaho, where the murders happened. But he drove uh, from Washington to Pennsylvania mid-December with his father in a white Honda Elantra, and you remember uh, that that's the car that police have been looking for. So clearly, the car was some was some part of the connection. Uh, DNA likely also involved, but we're still waiting to get all those. So we're we're trying to obviously to learn more about him, and uh, there's been a lot of you know reporting on you know what can be gleaned uh, about him from social media and various places. I understand he's a militant vegan. Uh, he refused to even eat food off plates that had or uh, pots that had been used to cook meat. Um, he, I, you know, there's discussion of possible drug issues, a kind of loner personality being described, and then. Somewhat intriguingly, someone studying criminology and that kind of thing. You know, what sort of profile is being constructed of this guy? So, yeah, it's interesting what you say about him being vegan. We've confirmed that even in the jail here in Monroe County that he's getting uh, vegan food. Um, You mentioned he was very strict about it. His aunt has said that when he came to visit, he wouldn't eat off of her pots and pans that have ever touched meat. She had to buy all new pots and pans. Um, So, you know clearly very intense in that way. Um, he uh, studied in criminal justice, and then he was uh, getting his PhD in criminology right now at Washington State University in uh, Pullman, um, Washington. So certainly an interesting background. Um, I should also point out, you know, he claims that he's innocent through his public defender, that he plans to fight all of these charges.
Um, so, uh, so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. So you, you mentioned that there are not other suspects being investigated right now. It seems like there's a relatively high degree of confidence that this is the, the, the suspect that they're looking for at this time. Yet we don't know anything at all about what led the police to, uh, zero in apart from this evidence about the make and model of the car? Was there any DNA evidence or anything of that sort? So there are reports that there was DNA evidence, um, ancestral DNA that that initially linked um, Koberger to the crimes. Again, like full roadmap of what led to the arrest until we get probable is connected. And obviously, again, the car that he was in, I mean, you had the whole country looking for that white Hyundai Elantra. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he does have that car. So, um, you know, they've, they've searched the car now. They've, they've done search warrants at a couple of different scenes, his parents' house here in Pennsylvania. Also, um, his office, he had an office because he was a PhD student. So they searched his office um, at Washington State University and also uh, his apartment. Hmm. Well, I know uh, I'm sure the families of the victims are very uh, you know, glad to see uh, an arrest in this case. Obviously, the process needs to play out and, you know, we need to obviously the public needs to know whatever the, the you know, the police know that led them to conclude that this is likely um, the person. But, um, yeah, I, I think this is it had been so long. I, you know, people I, I think were not necessarily expecting an immediate break in the case. But did, did you get the sense that perhaps the police were onto him for some for some time and it was just a matter of locating him or they really, you know, in the last, I don't know, week or or however long it's been, they, they, they got onto him and then they found him? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, you were breaking up a little because of the um, the service out here in Pennsylvania. It's kind of a rural area. It's not so good. Um, we definitely get the sense um, that they were following him for, for quite some time. We don't know exactly how long at this point. Uh, you know, police were so tight-lipped throughout the process. Um, so that's something we're eager to, to learn about. Mm. Yeah. Well, Brian, thank you so much uh, for joining us. We really appreciate you staying on top of the story, which we will continue to follow. Thank you. Thanks for having me. More Rising right after this. A new lawsuit from the U.S. Virgin Islands Attorney General Denise George accuses J.P. Morgan Chase of facilitating Jeffrey Epstein's sex trafficking operation and covering it up, according to the lawsuit. The bank and its employees knew they were facilitating Epstein's sexual abuse and sex trafficking conspiracy to coerce young women and underage girls to engage in commercial sex acts, according to the accusations. According to Insider, the bank concealed its conduct by failing to follow red flag laws. In the section of the lawsuit that details how J.P. Morgan allegedly turned a blind eye to Epstein's conduct is heavily redacted. A representative from J.P. Morgan declined to comment to Insider on this matter. Insider writes, The Virgin Islands prosecutor Denise George lost her job days after suing J.P. Morgan in connection with the Jeffrey Epstein investigation, according to Law & Crime. George's office did not immediately respond to Law & Crime's request for comment sent yesterday. So this is a kind of a crazy story. The prosecutor in the U.S. Virgin Islands, where uh, Jeffrey Epstein's sex island was located, filed suit making these um, allegations under, uh, I think, RICO law, and almost immediately is fired. As I've read, there has been no alternative explanation for why she was fired. And the timing is sort of incredible. 
Yeah, she's filing a lawsuit alleging a cover-up, and then she herself gets fired. You, so you would say, I mean, the reaction many people would have is that, well, the cover-up is continuing. She is right. being punished for trying to reveal what is going on with J.P. Morgan Chase. Now, we don't really know much, many of the details here. Um, right, the other, the other side, you could argue, is maybe the governor of the Virgin Islands thought this lawsuit is totally has no merit, and she's just trying to make a name for herself or something, and it will be embarrassing, and so then he fires her for doing that, although he didn't say he was firing her for that reason. Right. He just said, like, thank you for your service. Right. You You're could done. offer an alternative explanation that would yeah. help to assuage people's feelings that there's something conspiratorial so, going on So here. what do you think is the, again, because it's, it's not clear yet, what do you think is the J.P. Morgan connection, that he's making payments to various people, or maybe he's paying off underage people or so, something, and, so then, lot, and that is something that J.P. Morgan should have taken notice of? So a lot of the court documents are redacted, which prevents us from knowing all of, of what there is to know. However, what we do know is that in the lawsuit that was filed, uh, the plaintiffs accused the banks of, quote, providing the requisite financial support for the continued operation of Epstein's international sex trafficking organization in violation of the Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act, that's the RICO Act, um, a U.S. law used to target illegal conspiracies that was originally designed to target organized crimes. Now, RICO law has been used in ways that are gross overreaches uh, to get people who I would argue should not be overpoliced and criminalized. Uh, but it also has been the thing that has able, enabled law enforcement to get some genuine criminals that mm -hmm. otherwise are careful enough to avoid It's also something kinds of people who don't know anything about the law always say, oh, is that RICO? Usually it's not. <laughs> Usually that is not RICO. Well, the, the lawsuit goes on to, to say that Epstein's sex trafficking adventure was not possible without the assistance and complicity of a financial institution, specifically a banking institution, which provided his operation with an appearance of legitimacy and special treatment to the sex trafficking venture thereby ensuring its continued operation, et cetera, et cetera. So look, I think the implications here for the Virgin Islands are potentially significant. It is a place that is known to be a tax haven and a place that provides a lot of economic opportunities for folks who are trying to avoid certain regulatory restrictions in the United States and in other parts of the world and gets a lot of revenue from being a haven of sorts. So it could be that there's a lot of political pressure on uh, this prosecutor, uh, George here, mm. not to open the door to oh, the Oh, I get of, it. Not to, okay, not to spook right. potential people who are going to put their assets or their right. banking For in whatever the reason, islands. including yes. potentially sex trafficking reasons. So, I mean, this is a big question. I mean, we saw this a little bit with the, the Kanye fiasco, the choice of J.P. Morgan to shut down his accounts, kind of self-politicizing, mm -hmm. inserting themselves, and being something other than a kind of neutral provider and carrier in that sort of a situation. And it is interesting to see whether or not, you know, are they going to, you know, continue to say, oh, I'm just neutral. I'm allowed to do whatever I want. It's not my business to get involved in people's affairs. Or is this a case where they had bigger responsibility not to continue to bank for someone. I mean, it, it, and it, it's got a, it's an odd comparison. Jeffrey Epstein had already been convicted of all kinds of sexual crimes previously in his life before his last imprisonment that resulted in his death. And banks were happy to continue banking with this known convicted sexual Although, predator. I, we should read this statement from J.P. Morgan. They say, the, this is a statement from J.P. Morgan. They say the company ended its relationship with Epstein long before his ongoing misconduct became known. Since then, J.P. Morgan Chase has cooperated with investigations into Epstein and others. Do they mean the second 
accusation and trial or the first one know. from whatever it was, the late 90s? Right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's an interesting case. It will be interesting to see if there's actually any more substance. But there's a lot. I mean, there's so many institutions with tied to Harvard, right? Yeah, absolutely. Harvard, I know, had to investigate itself. A- absolutely. I mean, Jeff Epstein the was a high school made. teacher at, what was it, Dalton? A, a very tony uh, private school in New York City. I mean, people ha- who have had reason to know about his proclivities have put him in positions of power and proximity to young women for decades. And it is shocking, frankly, how few heads have rolled over that outside of, you know, Jeffrey Epstein's own proverbial head. So, look, we'll continue to follow this. And we'll have more rising right after this. Buffalo Bills safety Damar Hamlin is hospitalized in critical condition this morning after collapsing on the field last night after what appeared to be a routine play. Hamlin, who is 24 years old, received both CPR and AED on the field for over nine minutes after experiencing the medical emergency just shy of six minutes into the first quarter. NFL officials initially temporarily suspended the game, which was played against the Cincinnati Bengals. However, after both teams and coaching staff left the field, the game was instead postponed. A um, lot to unpack here. Obviously, it was uh, we're not showing the footage of him falling. It was pretty horrible to watch. He's still in critical uh, condition. Um, his agent, uh, Jordan Rooney, says his vitals are back to normal. They have put him to sleep, in, uh, and he has a breathing tube down his throat. Currently running tests, a very, very serious situation, and I, I can't imagine how they could possibly continue to have played the game well, after that. You might not be able to imagine it, Robbie, but much of the controversy and discussion around this event has been the fact that apparently the initial call was to go ahead and play, and it was some combination of resistance from the players on both teams who presented a united front, along with the coaching staff, who said, no, the game is not going to go on. Apparently, uh, when they were first you know, dismissed the locker room, players were told they had five minutes. Uh, and only because of the kind of solidarity showed on the field among the people who were actually playing the game was that decision um, changed. And a number of people, uh, sports commentators, got in a great deal of trouble, got a great deal of pushback for suggesting um, in the moment, at very least, yeah. and some of them later revised their opinion, but suggesting in the moment that because the game was such an important qualifying game, that it was necessary for the NFL to go on. Others made statements about how people have um, had similar kinds of physical events in the past and the game played on. So what's, yeah, what's I mean, right I mean, now? I think it, it possibly wasn't clear to all of these people how serious the situation. I mean, if someone, you know, breaks their leg, they might they're going to continue the game. If this is a life threatening situation, maybe that wasn't clear to the people talking about it. I don't see how the players can be asked to play after, you know, someone they're close with who's on their team is in a, is, you know, they, I mean, you, you saw from some of that footage we just played how distressed and, I mean, the other, the players were crying, they're hugging, they're, I mean, the, this is a, someone they care about who is in really bad shape. So it's, it, that's different. So any, anyone suggesting it should go on after, I mean, it's different from someone yeah, and for, breaking unfortunately, the leg, has to go to the hospital, et the, the pressure for players to go on, even under, the kind of conditions that you just described, breaking limbs and stuff, I, I think it has highlighted for folks concerns that are longstanding about the safety of the game. Um, there was the uh, quarterback earlier this year who um, suffered pretty significant ish- injuries on the field, which were also difficult to watch. And that ignited a whole other conversation about whether or not the gameplay has to be as dangerous as it is, whether or not um, 
you know, these players are being taken care of or if they're being exploited kind of for maximum profits. And I don't think that conversation is going to go away anytime soon, especially in light of last night's events. But another aspect of the coverage of this has been that a number of people immediately afterward online um, started implying that the the injury, that the cardiac arrest was a consequence of COVID vaccine. So there was a lot of argument about whether or not um, so-called anti-vaxxers are inappropriately exploiting the moment when there is no evidence that this was caused by anything COVID-related, whether or not, and if it were, it could be caused, obviously, there's cardiac effects of having COVID, especially multiple times, as addition to cardio effects that can come from vaccinations in some instances, uh, and that it was irresponsible for folks to try to kind of push that narrative as well. I mean, I think it's absolutely irresponsible to we don't know anything about that. Like, everyone just calm down. Let's not. Speculating is dangerous and unnecessary. We we don't know if he had some kind of pre-existing condition. I, 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 I don't even, do we even, I, presumably he's vaccinated. Right? There maybe is a requirement for the team, and that's yeah, why I'm people sure. know that he was. But I, I don't think that's even been discussed. Um, and then, you know, whether they're connected to that or to COVID, it's just very irresponsible to speculate about that. I mean, he, he was... So he he tackled a quarterback, and oh, then safety I think, and that, well no he's the safety. He tackled a quarterback, and then he um, he dropped after he got up. He stood up, and then he dropped um, the receiver. Yeah, the the uh, the situation. You know, we it didn't look like it was necessarily a hit out of the ordinary on football. But look, these are pretty rough circumstances. I mean, you talk about the the head trauma is something people talk about a lot with what's going on in football with concussions, that kind of thing. Look, this is this is clearly um, you know being in, in these positions, being being tackled, being having blunt force trauma um, all the time can have, we know that can have an effect on your health. That's not speculate. We now, whether that applies here, no idea, but that has been documented that that has, that can have a physical effect on you. Um, there, you know, there are people who, who have been really messed up from this and look, it's, you know, at, at the NFL level, I'd say it's your choice. You should be aware of the risks. A lot of people in the NFL are very well compensated, some much more than others. And sure conversations about fairness and, and, and what safety practices are being taken. And is there a way to make it safer for everyone? I, I think those conversations should absolutely take place. But again, it's your, you know, your decision to play, knowing what the risks are, but, um, but, you know, that is something that people should talk about. So let's have that conversation and then let's wait to hear about any. And, and look, if it if it, I don't think it's it's not we need we need to know if you know, what are the side effects of vaccines and what are there actually more incidents of this kind of thing? I don't think anyone has actually presented evidence of that yet, but that is something that should be tracked and understood. And I look, I understand people's you know hesitance. Uh, about vaccines for, for especially for younger, healthier, able-bodied people, when you know, a lot of people in the scientific community are, are saying, and other countries are saying that it's not, you know, vastly improving outcomes from COVID anyway. So why would it be required on anyone? But you know, we got to be very careful here about yeah, speculating think, things we don't I know about. I think the point is that there's just nothing about the situation that demanded a vaccine discourse. Um, what we know is that it was a football player who was involved in a play, stood up and fell yeah. back down after a couple of seconds. People have um, pushed back and showing the video of the actual hit, encouraging folks instead to show videos of him with family, videos of him doing this charity drive that raised 
thousands, uh, tens of thousands, I think maybe even over $100,000 in the, in the hour or so, hours or so after um, this mm-hmm. incident occurred. Uh, another point just to note is that there was some discourse, some conversation about whether or not um, it was improper for CPR to have been administered on the field, but apparently that was the medical recommended advice. It was unusual. I think part of why there was yeah. a stoppage in this kind of emotional response from people in the stadium and uh, you know viewers around the country was because of the both the length of time he was on the field and the fact of having CPR administered, that kind of life-reviving health aid isn't something that you typically see even among the most uh, traumatic of injuries that happen on a field. So I think a lot of people were relieved to see that he had stabilized at least. Many of his teammates were pictured visiting him at the hospital, obviously his family as well. And people are just um, really hoping that he comes through and has a positive recovery. Absolutely. Well, we'll be hoping for the best for him. Tomorrow on Rising, we'll be digging more into the Southwest Airlines debacle with a labor expert. You won't want to miss that. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. We're also available on Roku and other streaming services. It's good to be back, and we hope you tune in again tomorrow. Thanks for watching. Bye-bye.